Okay, we're, um, we're going to return to our uh, series in James. Um, if you remember a few weeks ago, Gary set out the context for us of James, um, and then Andy had a rather tricky passage on trials and temptations, which he did a fantastic job on. Um, so we're still in James chapter 1, um, and we're going to be looking at verses 19 to 27 um, today, and I've asked Hannah if she'll uh, just come and read that passage for us. So it's James 1, 19 to 27. My dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. For man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth, the evil that is so prevalent, and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word, and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror and, after looking at himself, goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. If anyone considers himself religious and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, He deceives himself, and his religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Excellent. Thanks, Hannah. Okay, there's a ton of stuff in there, isn't there? Um, It's only a few verses, but there's all sorts of bits and pieces. So we're going to try and see if we can pull out some of them. Um, what's quite neat, and it always helps, doesn't it, when someone's speaking, is the passage splits itself into three parts, you see. Not been to Spurgeon's, but I know that's what you're supposed to do. So we're going to look at three sections. So the first is being quick to listen. What does that mean? Um, the second, do what it says. So what are we saying when we come into that? And what is religion of worth? What is it that God is expecting of us? Okay, so let's start with quick to listen. Um, words are everywhere. We absorb words all the time from books, from TV, from social media, lectures, films, magazines, sermons. You name it, they come at us all the time. So a couple of quick, couple of quick word quizzes for us. Um, anyone any idea how many active words there are in the English language? How many words do we use actively all the time? Any, any ideas? 3,000. Anyone, anyone going to go up from 3,000? 20,000. There's actually supposed to be 175,000 words actively used in the English language. Um, What about the average person's vocabulary? How many words do you think you know of those 175,000? Anyone know more than 10? Uh, Okay. What's the average vocabulary, you reckon, of an English-speaking person? (laughs) Oh, no, that's underestimating. There's a lot more than that. It's actually around about 25,000 words, would you believe it? Now, this is one that we'll all know exactly. How many words are in the Bible? No, not different words. All the words. Anyone have any ideas? No, well, depending on your translation, somewhere around 700 to 800,000 words. Um, so anyone can do that. Um, we sort of love words, don't we, a lot of us. Um, we play games with words. Scrabble. 
Um, we do puzzles like Wordle. Today's one was a bit tricky. Has anyone done today's one? <laughs> I wasn't going to tell you what it was. Here's a, here's a tricky one, though, just to tell you. <laughs> On average, there's a new word added to the dictionary every two hours. And do you know what's special about the word swims? Even if you turn it upside down, it still says swims. So all these words are there. All these words are bombarding us every day. It's not always easy, is it, to know what it is we're supposed to be listening to. So James tells us to be quick to listen and slow to speak. But with those words coming from all directions, quick to listen to what? Now, different commentators tend to put a different emphasis on this, on to the extent of which James is calling us to listen to each other, which is something that we hear a lot about in Proverbs, and to the extent on which he's calling us to listen to the word of God. Now, given the context of where this appears today in this passage, I'm going to prioritise the word of God. Now, that's not to downplay listening to each other. I think we should be doing more of that. Um, But I want to look at the word of God particularly. So with so many different Bibles around today and Bible apps and speaking Bibles and online sermons, it's probably never been easier to hear or read the Word of God. But is that the same as listening to the Word of God? Hearing tends to be a sort of a passive um, physical process, isn't it? It makes use of one of our senses, if you like. It doesn't really need any skill. We don't have to concentrate on it. And quite often it's carried out when we don't even know the speaker or we're really disconnected. Um, I don't need to go very far on a London tube train before I'll hear those immortal words, mind the gap. (laughs) Or if I go onto a website now, you've got to click on that thing that says accept all cookies, haven't you? All the time. Okay, so I may have heard those words. I may have read the caution. But are they really going in? How often have we heard something and then maybe be asked a little while later what it was about and you really can't remember what about things that we've read and our brains are somewhere else and actually the words are sort of being absorbed but we don't really know what they mean listening is far more than hearing listening is an active process that needs us we need to pay attention we need to be curious we need to apply empathy we need to be motivation it involves all of our mind to allow those words that we hear or read to sink in, to be absorbed, to change us. Psalm 119 speaks much, doesn't it, of allowing God's word into our heart in different various sections. Uh, And in Joshua 1.8, God says to Joshua, Do not let this book of the Lord depart from your lips. Meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. So if we want our hearts and our characters to be changed, then we need to do more than hear the word of God. We need to truly listen to it. The picture that James gives is of the word being planted in us. So that suggests the word has taken root. It's not simply gone in one ear and straight out the other. Um, John 15, we know very well, it's that picture, isn't it, of God being the vine and us being the branches. And in verses 5 to 7, it says this, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, 
thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. So James says not only are we to listen to the word, but we're to accept the word humbly. Now that's a bit strange, isn't it? And I think what this means is that we need to accept that word with open hearts and with open minds. Now, that's probably not quite as easy as it sounds, if I'm honest. Um, A guy called Hugh McKay, who is an Australian social scientist, wrote a book, said, Why Don't People Listen? Great book to get if you get hold of it. And what he basically says is that we hear things through a filter which reflects our life experiences. So if you like, what we've experienced in the past actually helps us to make sense of what is coming through um, into the future and what we hear and read. So it's not easy, but John Stott said this. We need to repent of the haughty way in which we sometimes stand in judgment upon scripture and must learn to sit humbly under its judgment instead. If we come to scripture with our minds made up, expecting to hear from it only an echo of our own thoughts and never the thunderclap of God's, then indeed he will not speak to us and we shall only be confirmed in our own prejudices. We must allow the word of God to confront us, to disturb our security, to undermine our complacency and to overthrow our patterns of thought and behaviour. So it doesn't matter how many times I've read the Bible. It doesn't matter how many times I think I know a passage or how well I think I know it. In order to humbly accept that word, I need to be open to God challenging me. Challenging me to who I think I am. Challenging me to what the world is like. And challenging me to what God is like as well. I need to be so open that recognise when my ideals or lifestyles or things that I think are important are brought under the spotlight. And mostly I need to remember that I'm still a work in progress. And expect that as I truly listen to God's word that I will be changed more and more into his character. James wants us to shift the focus from ourselves, being slow to speak, onto the word of God, being quick to listen, in order that our hearts might be changed and we might better live out our faith in the world. So first of all, we need to listen. Secondly, we then need to do what it says, James tells us. Now, I like the letter of James because in the main, it's quite direct and plainly spoken, isn't it? Um, It's not the evasive speech of the Westminster politician, what's a party, what's not a party, or a business salesman. And so after we listen humbly to the word of God, James asks us to go simply with those four words, do what it says. Now, this is not a matter of salvation, but rather one of obedience born out of our love for God. We're not able to work out our salvation by what we do. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 explains, For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. So we can't save ourselves by action, but we can demonstrate our faith by our actions. So for James, true faith requires that. It requires actions. It needs mind, it needs heart, it needs soul, it needs all those things. But for James, we then need to do something about it. We should not simply be listeners, but also doers of the word. Now, James is not the only one in the Bible who expects action. In John 15, Jesus says that you are my friends if you keep my commands. 
in Luke 8, 8, 21, having been told that his mother and brothers were waiting for him, Jesus responds, my mother and brothers are those who hear God's word and put it into practice. And if we return to Joshua 1, 8, the last bit said, be careful to do everything written in it. Now, I'm sure we all know the the parable of the wise and the foolish builder that appears at the end of uh, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, 24 to 27. And it almost acts as a conclusion to that Sermon on the Mount. It brings everything together at the end. You've got one person, the wise one, he builds his house upon the firm foundation. And then you've got the other one, the foolish one, who builds his house upon the sand. So what do the two builders have in common? Well, they both heard the word of Jesus. They were both listeners. But only one, the wise man, chose to put those words into practice. The other one chose to do his own thing. And in James, we're told that the doers of the word will be blessed. And in the parable, we learn that the house of the foolish man will come crashing down. Listeners of the word have a choice. Either do what it says, or choose to do something else. So what choice will I make? Well, if doing a particular aspect of the word is something that comes quite easily, and is not particularly going to disrupt my life, well, the choice is easy, isn't it? I'll do what it says. But what about those aspects of the word that don't come quite so easily? What then? So what do I try to do then? Do I try and explain them away? Do I rationalise them? Do I say, oh, that was written for a people 2,000 years ago, can't possibly apply to me? Now, I absolutely believe that we've got to interpret the Bible in the culture that we live. I think that's really important. But we can't use that as an excuse to not do the things that we don't want to do. So although it was much disputed, Mark Twain is alleged to have said something along these lines of this. Some people are troubled by the things in the Bible they can't understand. The things that trouble me are the things in the Bible that I can understand. Now, whether Twain actually said the words, it doesn't really matter. But the sentiment can really hit home, can't it? I don't have to go very far to find some perfectly understandable passages in the Bible that are going to impact on my life choices and my priorities. And once I couple those passages with the simple exhortation of James to do what it says, I can really find myself in an uncomfortable place very quickly. If we return just for a moment to the parable of the wise and that foolish man, the story follows the Sermon on the Mount, which is probably the nearest thing to a manifesto that Jesus ever uttered. It's really his own description of what he thinks the Christian faith is and what he wants followers to be. It's a Christian value system and an ethical standard that is really so far removed from most non-followers. And basically, like Ephesians 5, 1 to do, it's urging us to become imitators of God. Now, I can be quite good at imitation. I can, um, I can put my favourite team's football shirt on and pretend that I um, could be, or at least once might have been, a professional footballer, probably too late now. I can, um, I can put my cycling kit on and I can go on my bike and I can imagine that Jackson's Lane is Alpe d'Huez or Mont Ventoux, albeit with a few more potholes. Um, I can even do a passable imitation of a Christian. Um, I've got several versions of the Bible around the house. I've got one on my phone and one on my Kindle. I've highlighted those meaningful passages. I've learned by heart some of the important texts, even taken notes in sermons. 
In church services, I know when to stand up, I know when to sit down, know what and when to sing and when to be silent. I know that prayer is important and I even know the words of the grace. (laughs) Now, while some of those things are helpful, doing them does not make me an imitator of God. When James says, do what it says, is he referring to my poor imitation of being a Christian? Or is he referring to living out the Bible, including those passages which I understand, but those which come across to me? You may have come across that acronym, WWJD, what would Jesus do? They don't see the wristbands around quite as much now as, uh, as we used to. Um, and it's probably something that's been around for centuries. Um, but we think the phrase was actually coined by a chap called Charles Sheldon, um, who wrote a bo- book in 1896. And that book starts with a homeless man who challenges a church pastor to take seriously the imitation of Christ. The homeless man explains to the pastor his difficulty with the way that Christians treat the downtrodden and the poor. And he says this to the pastor, I heard some people singing in church the other day, and I kept wondering what they meant by it. It seems to me that there's an awful lot of trouble in the world that somehow wouldn't exist if all the people who sing such songs went and lived them out. Ouch. Yeah, the remainder of the book then takes the reader through different life scenarios with at least one character in each scenario being challenged to consider what would Jesus do. Do what it says. Four very simple words probably form one of the shortest sentences in the Bible and yet they're far-reaching and life-changing, those words for us. Okay, so let's move on to the last section, section three. What is the religion of worth that James is talking about? James speaks firstly about taming the tongue, um, but that's a topic that he comes back to more extensively later, so I'm going to let one of the other speakers um, later in James unpack that. The two things I want to look at in this is caring for widows and orphans and not being polluted by the world. Now, the Bible speaks often of widows and orphans, and whilst the statement can be taken literally... It also represents the class of people that are the most vulnerable. Um, When the Bible was written, there was no welfare state, and the expectation was that the family would be the ones who'd provide the support for someone who is in trouble or in need. And by the very definition, widows and orphans have a less than complete family safety net to fall back on. It's often said that the true measure of any society can be found in how it treats its most vulnerable members. Now, those widows and orphans that James refers to, I say, are represented of those most disadvantaged in our society. And they crop up again and again throughout the Bible. In Isaiah 10, 1 to 2, we read this. Woe to those who make unjust laws, to those who issue oppressive decrees, to deprive the poor of their rights and withhold justice from the oppressed of my people, making widows their prey and robbing the fatherless. And as part of his final defence, Job in Job 29 says, Whoever heard me spoke well of me, and those who saw me commended me because I rescued the poor and cried for help, and the fatherless who had none to assist them. The one who was dying blessed me. I made the widow's heart sing. I put on righteousness as my clothing. Justice was my robe and my turban. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy. I took up the case of the stranger. So vulnerability can come in all sorts of shapes and sizes. It may stem from upbringing, 
It makes them from our age, whether we're young, whether we're old. Ethnicity, disability, financial or social circumstances. The list is a long one. But what James makes very clear is that for us as Christians, we need to look after and protect those that are most vulnerable. That's those in our church, those in our street, those in our town and those in the world. And then almost as a throwaway line at the end, James says that we should keep ourselves from being polluted by the world. Now, anyone over a certain age can remember any social event you used to go to, you would come back reeking of tobacco, wouldn't you? It doesn't happen so much now, I'm great to say. Simply by being there, you were being polluted. So when James is talking about pollution, do you think that's what he simply means? Does he simply mean that we should keep away from the world and its influences and its prejudices and its values so that they don't rub off on us? As we look at other um, parts of scripture it would seem that excluding ourselves from the world can't be what James is telling us to do. For example, in 1 Corinthians 9.22, Paul happily tells us that he has become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. So there appears to be two different principles that are at work here. On the one hand, Christians are called to be set apart and to be distinctive, but on the other hand, we're told to be inclusive, Um, to take our place in the world, to seed the gospel in the communities that we're in. Let's just think for a moment of the Israelites in the 6th century BC being exiled in Babylon. The Babylonians expected that the Israelites would come to love their ways. Um, They would lose their own identity, they'd be assimilated into Babylon. The false prophets went to the other extreme. They told the Israelites, stay away, don't get polluted, keep out there. But through God's prophet Jeremiah, we read in chapter 29 of God speaking to his people, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you in exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. God wanted the people, his people, to become part of that pagan city of Babylon. He wanted them to build houses, he wanted them to settle down, he wanted them to marry Now, he still prophesied that without repentance, Babylon would be destroyed. So that God's people weren't to turn a blind eye, but they were to play an active part in seeking the prosperity of the place in which they lived. So if not saying clear of the world, what is not being polluted? Maybe Romans 12, 1 to 2 can help us. It says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. Now part of that transformation may just be simply seeing the places where we live and we inhabit in the same way that God does. Our perspective makes a difference. Let's think of an example. Saul's soldiers, when they saw Goliath, considered he was too big to kill. David, when he saw Goliath, considered he was too big to miss. Both the soldiers and the David were faced with the same thing in front of him. They were looking at the same thing, but their perspective was different. If you like, they were looking at it through different coloured glasses. So part of remaining unpolluted maybe rests on how we see the world. Are we looking through glasses that are shaped through God's word? Or are we looking through glasses that have been shaped by the world's values? If we go full circle, 
the more we truly listen to the word, which is what we said at the beginning, and allow the word to shape us, then the more we're likely to see things through God's perspective. Later in the letter, James goes on to describe that worldly wisdom is made up of bitter envy and selfish ambition. So perhaps a further part of remaining unpolluted is that refusal to be driven by our own desires or appetites and our own selfish goals. What we do, we do for the glory of God and for the furtherance of his kingdom on earth. So not being polluted does not mean withdrawal. It does not mean hunkering down in our Christian enclaves away from the world. We are to be salt and light. We are to be light on the hillside. We are to keep our spiritual distinctiveness, but we've got to see the world as God sees it and do those things for his glory. So there's probably at least four things, I think, that we can take away from this in conclusion. Firstly, we are to actively listen to the word of God with open hearts and open minds, prepared and expecting to be changed to be more like him. Paul in 2 Corinthians 3.18 reminds us that we are being transformed into his, that's God's, not Paul's, image, and that's a process and not a point in time. Secondly, we are to be doers of the world, not bystanders, not pontificators, not onlookers. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like the wise man who built his house on the rock. Thirdly, we're to look out and look out for and protect those within our communities that are vulnerable and most at risk. And fourthly, we need to retain our distinctiveness and spiritual identity but be active in the roads and the town where we live and the communities that we find ourselves in on a day-to-day basis and work for the pleasure of doing everything for the glory of God. So I think some of Jane's words may be a bit uncomfortable, but we probably can't say that they're not clear. Shall we pray? Father God, I want to thank you for James. Lord, I want to thank you that um, he has written this letter and that it's included in the Bible. I want to thank you for its messages, which are often plain and straightforward, if maybe sometimes a little uncomfortable. And Lord, I just pray for us today that there may be something in this letter that's just impacted on us, that we may have heard and listened to something slightly different. Father, I ask that we would be changed to be more like you, that we would see the world through your eyes, that we would reflect Um, your passion, we will reflect your values in the things that we say and do and the people that we meet. Father, I ask that we would not just be listeners of the word, but we would go out and do something. Indeed, ask ourselves that question, what would Jesus do? And Lord, I just pray more than anything that we would be changed to be more like you and our likeness would be like you and we would be able to shine brightly in this place. So Father, just take each one of us and lift us up, we pray now, and just change us as we open our hearts to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.